Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 2nd. We begin with news that Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, received close to $230,000 in bonuses above her salary in 2021. We get reaction to the payout from Dwayne Bratt, Professor of Political Science from Mount Royal University. Do you have a TV in your bedroom? If so, could that be the reason you feel chronically tired? We get the lowdown on if watching your favorite show in bed can have a negative impact on your sleep. From Dr. Charles Samuels, Medical Director of the Center for Sleep and Human Performance. Still on the topic of sleep, could it be that napping is bad for your health? Say it ain't so. We discuss new research on the topic that says that could be the case. We get details on the study from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, we look at the importance of learning the art of negotiating at a young age. We speak with Angelique de Montbrun, a mother and head of marketing at financial education website mydo.ca, who explains why she believes it's never too early to teach your kids the skill of negotiation. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Dina Hinshaw topping Alberta's sunshine list, showing a total of more than $227,000 paid out in the form of cash benefits. Is this bonus pay warranted? How does it compare to other provinces? Joining us to talk about it is Dwayne Bratt, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. Hi, Dwayne. How are you? Hey, good morning. Uh, let's talk about the pay it, bigger than anyone else across the country. Is it warranted, do you think? Well, bigger than the comparisons that were in the article. I haven't seen a full comparison across provinces. I've only seen it with three. And prior to the pandemic, uh, Dina Hinshaw made roughly the same as what Bonnie Henry made in B.C. or what Deep uh, Shiaab in Saskatchewan made. Um, but they never received bonuses in 2021 um, like Dina Hinshaw did. But we don't know what the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Ontario or, or Quebec uh, received. So it's only a partial comparison. You know, uh, these, these are public jobs, uh, Professor. We understand that. But I was uh, saying to Sue off microphone that two different oil companies can pay their executives what they want. How important or is it a big deal if she's paid more than her counterparts in other provinces? Is is that an issue? <clears throat> well, uh, to my mind, the base salary isn't the issue. It's, it's the bonuses. Um, but this particular provincial government has spent an inordinate time uh, comparing wages of public sector workers across the country uh, when they were targeting uh, doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, professors, uh, regular public sector employees. So they make those comparisons all the time. Um, and their argument is that they're overpaid compared to the rest of the, the country. And here is a senior health official who was um, given a, um, a very large bonus. Now, I think it was justified. She was not the only one who received a bonus. It was the highest amount because she's the highest paid employee. Um, but there were 107 people uh, in the various departments of health in, in Alberta who received a bonus for their work in the pandemic. And this wasn't over a week or two weeks or a month. This was over an entire year. Uh, dealing with the pandemic, and they made comparisons that bonuses had been given out <clears throat> during the Fort McMurray fires, during the uh, High River Calgary floods. Um, so there's nothing, nothing particularly unusual about this, except of course the amount, um, the individual, 
And of course, this is all tied up into COVID politics. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, there's no question that she was front and center for two years and, you know, at, at times even got thrown under the bus. But does that all play into, you know, now questioning the motivation behind Dr. Din, uh, Dr. And, and, and there are people who are saying <clears throat> she was simply bought off by the Kenny government. And um, I think that's an unfair cheap shot. Um, to, to say that when you look at the reasoning for the bonuses, they said they used a formula based on the number of hours worked and the, the salary that you had. I can imagine that instead of working 40 to 45 hours a week, she was working close to 70 or 80 hours a week, not just once or twice, but pretty much every week in 2021. And there's also a little tidbit hidden in the story around danger pay. Um, in addition to the bonuses, the Alberta government was paying almost $300,000 a year in personal security for Dina Henshaw. So, you know, uh, that may explain the, the bonus, that it was a combination of the sustained overtime, the change in her job description, which didn't involve press conferences uh, prior to this, uh, and danger pay, which is, you know, a really sad state of affairs. But if you believe that she was simply a puppet of Kenny, you're going to be outraged by this. Yeah. If you're believing that anyone who works in the public sector should be paid as low as possible, you're going to be outraged by this. And if you believe that her restrictions cost you your job or your business or your uh, or your income, you're also going to be outraged by this. But how does this woman get a bonus while bringing in policies that led me to lose my job? Here, here. I think that that will be the water cooler mm-hmm. and the coffee talk, uh, the coffee shop talk over the next uh, 24 hours or so, at least. I want to switch gears briefly while we have you, Professor Brett, and that is, of course, all eyes. If you are in the UCP camp on October 6th, that's the date that's been circled on the calendar. The next debate, by the way, uh, as you know, August 30th in Edmonton. Where are we as of August 2nd? Do we still <coughs> have a front runner? Do we have a, a direction that you see this going? Well, based on the debate in Medicine Hat on Wednesday, there is a clear frontrunner, and that's Daniel Smith. And that's not just me saying that. That's the other candidates. When you watch their behavior, their whole focus was on Daniel Smith. Um, and so uh, I think she is leading the pack right now. We'll have to see if the sustained attacks that she took from multiple candidates on, on Wednesday are hurting her or helping her. Uh, because I can see a situation where her supporters go, well, if they're all against her, I must be doing the right thing by by supporting mm-hmm. her. And let's circle back to the, the Dina Hinshaw issue. That is going to land right in the middle of that UCP leadership race, right? They, there was already a lot of criticism about Alberta Health Services in that debate, not just by Smith, not just by Todd Lowen or, or Brian Jean, by other candidates as well. Well, now you've got Dina Hinshaw in there. And there's going to be a lot of focus on her pay, on her role. Um, so she's uh, she's right smack dab in the middle of that. Dwayne, do you feel like, you know, in Danielle's case, you know, any kind of publicity is good publicity? You know, you take her, her cancer comments and she's getting a lot of play <clears throat> about that, both good and bad. Does that help her? Oh, I think it does. Uh, same thing when she had that uh, public spat with, with Jason Nixon over her Sovereignty Act, whether that would even pass in the legislature, right? She is appealing as an insurgent candidate. And so if you see um, 
an establishment figure like like a Nixon or Travis Taves uh, attacking you, um, that just or Rajan Sani in the debate on on Wednesday, I think that just adds to her her credibility within that group of people that she has brought to the table. The question is, this is not a first-past-the-post system. This is a preferential ballot where you need to receive 50% plus one. I can see her doing very well on the first ballot, uh, but is she going to get enough second- and third-place votes from the other candidates as they start to drop off to to go over the top? Um, that I don't know about. There's still going to be selling memberships up until August 12th. There's another debate in Edmonton, and, and then we have the vote. Yep, we'll watch it unfold. Mm-hmm. Cap, capping off summer with that last debate on August 30th. I'll be watching on the deck with a lawn chair and a cold beer, I think. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time, Professor. Okay, see you soon. See you, Andy. See you later. That is Dwayne Bratt, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. I'm a little worried about the answers coming out of this interview, but is the TV in your bedroom negatively impacting your sleep? Joining us to discuss is Dr. Charles Samuels, Medical Director of the Centre for Sleep and Human Performance. Good morning to you, Dr. Samuels. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thank you. We've been having this discussion because some (laughs) of us here on staff have televisions in our bedroom. Others don't. Does it have an impact on on our sleep and, and all that comes along with that? Okay, well, don't be too worried about my answer. Okay, good. <laughs> so I, I thought about this, and I thought i got to start by saying that if you have no sleep issues and you feel well-rested during the day, it doesn't matter what you do. Okay. So better. that's really important, okay? <laughs> um, so for people who do struggle with their sleep, there is advice that one of the sort of fundamental principles is no TVs in the bedroom. And it is important, actually, and it can make a huge difference to people's sleep. Um, There are many, many other things that you can address that are far more important than the TV, but the TV becomes a real uh, problem. More, More importantly is that people don't acknowledge that they're screened. So even if they don't have a TV, they're on their phones right up to bedtime. That is quite destructive to the physiology of sleep. <clears throat> Dr. Samuels, it's also interesting that, you know, you, you talk about the, the actual device itself, but I think that whether you're single, that's a different to maybe a, a kettle of fish than if you're in a couple and one uh, of the couple likes to watch TV till midnight, the other person likes yeah. to try to knock off at 930. So I guess that's something right. that needs to be considered. Yeah, no. So couples, it's fascinating how they can very commonly, upwards of 50%, have completely different um, sleep uh, phase, what we call sleep phases. So in other words, one will be more a night owl and the other will be more a lark. And that's a really difficult thing to find a compromise to. So the TV becomes really bad then. Um, so w- the advice would be for the night owl to watch TV if they're going to outside the bedroom. Um, of course, that that's a real habit that's hard to break is just, you know, going into bed and turning on your TV. But we would say the the best built bedroom is a dark, cool space with no distractions. What is it about the light from a TV, from your phone, from an iPad or or whatever? What is it that that hinders our sleep? Well, so so there are two things. So one is the light, 
um, and the light emitted from a screen, not a television set, but a screen, because they're different, um, actually dampens down the um, rise of melatonin at night, which begins for the neutral sleeper between sort of eight and nine, sort of six to nine in the evening is a rise in melatonin. And any exposure to any light um, will dampen it down, but the, the light emitted from a screen is quite potent. So the screen savers or the screen blockers are very good. They're very effective and we use them with teenagers, for instance, who are doing their homework late at night on a screen. Um, So that's not as much of an issue as actually the interaction with the device. So being on social media, texting, um, scrolling through feeds is very stimulating to the brain. And of course, that doesn't help people fall asleep. So you mentioned the difference, Dr. Samuels, between, you know, the the phones and the iPads and the television screens. But uh, when it comes to our brains being super active, I was told, you know, you have to calm down and have, a, you know, a relaxation around uh, not having being stimulated. Reading maybe aside, I'm not sure if that's different, but how, how long should we leave watching a program or being on our phone before, even if it's out of the room, we, we put our head down? Um, well, I think out of the room, you know, I would say, you know, geez, we're... You know, we watch TV right up to an hour before we go to bed. It's it's so much different because there's a psychological factor there, just being out of the room. So TV outside the room, you know, it's not as big a deal as um, the devices. So I often will tell patients, again, who struggle with sleep, that they should be putting their devices away after supper. So, you know, really for an 11 of clock person who goes to bed at 11, um, somewhere between six and eight, enough with the technology. It's a real problem, actually, technology. Um, And I've done a lot of work with this, with video gamers, actually. You you had mentioned a screen blocker. You talked about that. I didn't know that it was a thing. Are are you talking about a, a protector that stops the blue light? Yes, actually, yeah. And you just go into your settings on any computer now. It has, if you go into your display settings, you can actually set a nighttime function. And, you know, I put mine on for sort of, I think, 6 or 7 p.m. And it just comes on and it blocks the blue light that's coming off the screen. Can you do that with your computer as well or your iPad, yes. that sort of thing? Yeah, anything now. Okay. All Dr. of the uh, operating systems have them in the display setting, yeah. Okay, thank you. Dr. Samuels, before we let you go, uh, there might be a Mm -hmm. whole section of people out there listening to our our conversation here and not being aware that, you know, there's somebody who specializes like like you do. What's the first step if I have problems sleeping? Family doctor first or should I, can I reach out to an organization like the Center for Sleep, for example? Well, you can. So people can go directly and it's just basically Google Center for Sleep and Human Performance and it just comes up and you can come directly to us or you can raise the issue with your family physician or your primary care provider um, and then see. So, you know, I mean, if you're concerned, that's what we try and say to people is if you have a problem, you know, there are people who can help. And what I know as past president of the Canadian Sleep Society is our understanding of sleep health in Canada is quite limited. And so people need to know really they can get help so they should just reach out either to the primary care provider or directly to us they can self-refer as well thank you so much for your time this morning really appreciate the chat you bet my pleasure take care you too dr charles samuels medical director of the center for sleep and human performance online at centerforsleep.com people who nap often are at risk of having a greater chance of developing high blood pressure or even having a a stroke 
That's according to a new study which used uh, data from over 300,000 participants. To discuss the findings, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Seriously, Dr. J, now <laughs> napping, the art of napping might not be good for us? Stop it. Uh, yeah, I know. This, this is going to throw off a lot of people, I'm sure. So let's just look at it. So 360,000 people watched for approximately four years who had higher blood pressure, who had more stroke. They had a huge uh, correlation with uh, people who napped. So they had also the usual uh, risk factors were identified, you know, people who are obese or were smokers, etc. They had a high risk of hypertension and stroke. But this was an oddity that the people with higher frequency of naps seemed to fall in the same category as all these other people who had very uh, common and very well-identified risk factors. So the question, is this a risk factor or what does this mean? Mm -hmm. and, and here lies the dilemma because I know a lot of people nap. So I think that really this is just a marker of potential trouble. If I have to take a frequent nap, I'm probably not sleeping well at night. If I'm not sleeping well at night, what's the problem there? And maybe that's what really is the risk for for stroke and for hypertension. It's not that I'm napping. It's because I need to take a nap because I'm not getting good sleep at night. I'm not getting good quality sleep at night. And that's really the risk factor. Okay, that, that makes sense. That makes a little more sense. It does kind of explain it better. So it just it really, in the end, is kind of proving the point that just how key a good night's sleep is. Oh, absolutely. So I think, you know, if we're on holidays or we have the luxury of time and we enjoy a nap, that's not any risk factor. That's a beautiful thing. You're <laughs> not can, kidding. Yeah, that we can do that. And, uh, you know, versus the only way I can function is if I have a nap, you know, for one or two hours because I'm just otherwise I'm just very fatigued or I just can't get through my day. Those are very, very different scenarios. And I think this is really what it points to. So, you know, if you truly do need a nap and you're napping frequently because you just can't get by, then I think as somebody who, you know, you are at risk for things and you better get checked out or sort of what's wrong with your sleep or why are you not napping or or uh, sort out your stress or do something different because it's not working and that is risky. Dr. J, though, it, it is such an individual thing. I, I think that might underscore why you want to talk to your uh, healthcare professional or a sleep uh, a doctor, to, so to speak, because yeah. whereas some people might need 10 hours to function as a human being, some take seven, right? Yeah, I mean, the average is always that quoted eight hours of sleep at night is actually pretty accurate and pretty true. And people believe that they can get by with a lot less uh, might be kidding themselves a bit. But yeah, it is very, very individual too. And most people sort of know if I can get X number of hours of sleep a night, I'm pretty good. I feel good. I wake up well-rested. You know, I'm healthy, right? Uh, but very individual. And the reasons why people don't sleep also quite quite varied. You know, uh, you know, sleep apnea is very, very different than insomnia, uh, for instance. And these are both things that really interfere horribly with good sleep. So should we then, if we feel tired through the day and there shouldn't really technically be a reason for it, is that a time we should go to the doctor and say, hey, I need a checkup, maybe there's something going on? Well, if, yes, if you believe that uh, we call restorative sleep, if you wake up every morning and feel that you've really not slept well, um, that might be worthy of looking into. If you feel, you know, I get up and I'm tired and I stay tired the entire day, I just can't shake myself out of that. 
um, absolutely that's a reason for further investigation, or at least to, to sort it out what, what might be behind that. I don't want to nap on you, but I'm a little tired. Oh, sorry. Uh, man. I, this is this is the scariest thing I've heard all week, but uh, and it's an early week, early in the week. Thanks so much, Dr. Jablonski. Okay, you betcha. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. I love what he does. Sometimes Unless I don't like thanking him for what he tells us, though. I feel, feel like he was talking to me directly. <laughs> can we instill strong negotiation skills in our kids and what impact can those skills have on their development? To discuss, we're joined this morning by Angelique de Montbrun, a mother and the head of marketing at Mido. Good morning, Angelique. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, this is new to me. I've not heard of Mido. M-Y-D-O-H, Mido.ca. Tell yeah. us a little bit about Mido and the work that your organization does. Absolutely. So Mido is a money management and smart cash card. And really what we're trying to do in the world is empower money experiences for young people and families in Canada. The idea being that um, when you learn at a young age how to spend, save, earn, set goals, budget, you will be better equipped. Um, both financially and just kind of overall for life um, as you continue to grow up. I was saying, as we said, you're coming up, Angelique, that you kids, but I have four of them, uh, have a natu- uh, natural Amazing. skill. <laughs> a natural skill for negotiating to a certain extent because they want what they want and they try their best. So they have kind of a base, I would think. So how do we mold that into more of an official and tangible and usable negotiating skill? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tend to agree. I have three of my own. And I would say that um, negotiation is definitely a part of the day-to-day uh, of raising kids. But I think the idea of good negotiation is really about seeing reciprocal value in the person you're negotiating with. And maybe that isn't necessarily where kids are at when they're young. They're trying to get what they want. Um, and so they're going back and forth. And the idea that the family unit, the parent, um, can help support in building that healthy um, perspective and that healthy skill of, of really being able to understand the value that each other brings um, and building on that healthy relationship. Um, and, and, you know, negotiation, um, when we think about it, is trying to find that fair and, and balanced um, situation where where something is working for both people who are involved, and so that's really how we see negotiation and how we see building the skill of negotiation. And when we think about the long term benefit of that, and being able to you know not just start when you're in your adulthood, but if you're starting as a child when you enter into post secondary school, and you might need to negotiate something with your professor, or when you're negotiating your first salary. Um, in your first position or first job, having that skill and entering into that well-equipped versus, you know, really that being your first experience of negotiation puts you in a much better and more successful position um, to be able to get what you need and what you want out of a situation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's very hard to sort of advocate for yourself when you're trying to negotiate a salary. And I don't know if men are better than women at it, but I've been terrible at it my whole life. I wish that I had learned that skill at a younger age for sure. So is there, you know, is there an age that you should start teaching this? 
It's a good question. And really, I think it, it depends on the family and, and, you know, the perspective of the parent and where their child is at. Um, it's definitely something that I work on with my 12 and 13 year old. And so in our house, um, we have, you know, chores that are mandatory. You have to do these chores. And then we have chores that we uh, do open up for negotiation. I want my kids to be able to have conversations with me about what they think the value of the chore should be or what they might be able to get um, payment for that chore. And, and I think that is a really healthy and safe environment for them to start to practice those skills. And so that's something that we're focused on right now in our household um, at that age. But really, it can be, you know, very young. We do see a lot of kids who are having those conversations and building those, you know, active communication and listening skills with their parents and being able to model that behavior, not just in conversation with your kids, but also, you know, when you're out in the world and experiencing the world together is just so important. And so I would say it starts, you know, basically as soon as they can comprehend when they're when they're looking at you and observing you and and seeing your behavior and then as you start to grow you practice that together in different environments and situations as an adult angelique you notice that not every negotiation goes the way you'd like it to go and uh, so i guess what i'm wondering is how can we lessen the blow or teach our kids that you know you're not going to win every game you're not going to win every battle and dealing with that, because that's my greatest issue at home. And when they don't get what they want, you hear about it. So, so how do we temper that in yeah. our kids? Yeah, and I think the, the, the idea of being, you know, it is emotional. And um, when we think about negotiation, when we think about even finances, it is highly emotional. You're dealing with a lot of things. And so I think being able to talk through that. And one thing that we really advocate for in Mido is, that it's not just about dealing with money or finances, but it's really about opening up conversations and starting to talk about things that maybe traditionally would have been taboo um, and, and understanding, you know, okay, why are you feeling that difficult emotion when you don't get what you want and walking through that and um, being able to practice that communication of actually giving and naming um, the, the hard feeling. And so, you know, we really do want families to to start to talk. And, and that's really the premise of being able to learn is that, you know, through active conversation and experiences when dealing with money and negotiation, you really are starting to demystify um, and kind of, you know, give name to um, things that maybe haven't been talked about previously. Your organization, you talk about, you know, we're facing a generation of kids that has trouble negotiating contracts, salaries, et cetera, but also struggling to manage money. Do you think that because we've become a, you know, basically cashless society, is it harder to teach kids about money and managing it when it's not physically in their hands? There is something, uh, especially for younger kids, where the the tangible, tactile uh, feeling of money, when you actually see it go, um, uh, it does kind of resonate maybe a little bit more. Um, But that's what we're trying to do at Midos on our app, is we're trying to make that experience more day-to-day, more tangible, and, and more real Um, And really, you know, when you are able to log into the app and earn money through chores or allowance or 
you know, however your parent uh, sees fit to, to be able to equip you with earning money. Um, and then you spend that money and you see that you don't have enough maybe to buy that next, you know, game that you might want to um, purchase, it starts to become tangible. And so we are seeing ways through a number of different apps like Mido that you do have the capacity to start to experience finance and money um, in a more tangible way, still in the digital space, which is, you know, where we're kind of moving as a society. And, um, and it still have an impact and it's still be able to feel real. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Angelique. And uh, Mido, M-Y-D-O-H dot C-A, we can hop on there and you can get a trial. Is that right? Yes, free trial for 30 days. Perfect. Mido.ca if people want to learn more about what you do. Thanks for your time, Angelique. Thank you. That is Angelique de Montbrun, a mother and head of marketing at Mido.